Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's pod, Gavin Newsom lives to fight another day as the Republican recall goes down in flames. Congresswoman Katie Porter is here to talk about the latest negotiations over Joe Biden's economic plan. And we go through the top five quotes from some new books that detail just how close Trump came to pulling off a coup. But first, check out the brand new season of This Land, where Rebecca Nagel takes you inside her year-long investigation into a series of custody battles over Native American children, which reveals a bigger story about shadowy right-wing groups and big corporations using the issue of adoption to destroy the entire legal structure that protects Native rights. Uh, This is fantastic journalism that Rebecca has done yet again. It is an outstanding listen. Uh, Do yourself a favor. Catch up on the first five episodes now wherever you get your podcasts. You can also catch Rebecca this week on America Dissected, uh, which turns 100 episodes old this week. Um, Rebecca joins Abdul for discussion about how Native Americans were able to go from being one of the hardest hit communities by COVID to now one of the most vaccinated. Uh, Follow America Dissected on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We thought you all could use some good news. So we got you a landslide in California. Governor Gavin Newsom has defeated the recall and will keep his job thanks to very high turnout among Democratic voters. No is currently leading by 64 to 36 percent with about 75 percent of the vote in, though that margin is expected to shrink a bit since some of the later mail-in ballots tend to trend Republican. Here's Newsom declaring victory on Tuesday night. Democracy is not a football you don't throw it around. It's more like a, I don't know, antique vase. You can drop it and smash it in a million different pieces. And that's what we're capable of doing if we don't stand up to meet the moment and push back. I, I said this many, many times on the campaign trail. You know, you may have defeated Trump, but Trumpism is not dead in this country. Democracy is like an antique vase that you might see at uh, fancy places like French Laundry. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, So, Dan, in the middle of August, the 538 polling average had Newsom avoiding a recall by just 0.2%. Not 2%, 0.2% was the polling average. He's now ahead by 28%. For context, Newsom won the governorship in 2018 for the first time by 24%. And Biden won California in 2020 by 29%. Um, What is your hottest, spiciest take on what happened between mid-August and yesterday? Well, the most popular take is all the polls were wrong. Because dunking on pollsters is really in vogue these days. And I understand it. They get our hopes up. They crush them. They refuse to learn lessons from previous elections. You've never engaged in this practice yourself, of course. Of wrong dunking on pollsters? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is no bad habit, like annoying Twitter habit that I haven't engaged in at least once if you look at my tweets. So that's fine. But <laughs> I just want to say that polls are not predictors, right? They are a snapshot in time based on a supposition of what could happen. And so there's this just view that Newsom was always up by 28%. Why did we ever worry? Why did people care? What was all the hullabaloo about? But this was not one poll. It was a couple polls, two poll, special, two specific polls, Survey USA, which is a terrible poll. And if you go to their website, it truly looks like an AOL chat room from like 1996. Like it, it is terrible. Also, by the way, it's got an A minus rating or an A rating from 538, which just goes to show you not that not that 538's you know rating system is terrible or anything, but 
take those ratings on the, the pollster ratings with a grain of salt. <laughs> Because even some good pollsters can get can have really bad polls, which clearly Survey USA did in this case. They literally had Gavin Newsom losing by nine points. It wasn't even like it was tied. It was losing by nine points. I'm guaranteed he was not down they had by a nine wor- There was a wording mistake in there, which they fixed between the two polls that showed the giant change. But I think it is those, those polls actually affected the race. Whether they were accurate, whether it was what was actually going to happen or not, things changed from July to September. And one of the things that changed is those polls were a holy shit moment for California Democrats who were like, oh, we could end up with Larry Elder as our governor. And if you talk to anyone who organized phone banks, canvases, those grassroots organized state, they will say that it was very hard to get people engaged before those polls. And afterwards, they were, were filling up phone bank shifts. And so they 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 matter. I don't know whether they were right or they're wrong, but they were incredibly impactful. And maybe Gavin Newsom was always going to win, but he wasn't necessarily always going to win by 28 points. Yeah, I have a take that's not necessarily contradictory to that, but like I keep, I thought back to the the problem with polls in 2020, or one of the problem with the polls in 2020 is that uh, they found that Democrats were more likely to be home during the pandemic anyway, were really excited to vote in 2020 and answered pollsters' calls much more than a lot of Republicans did, and so the polls skewed towards Democrats, uh, un, you know, wrongly um, by larger margins than they ended up. And I sort of wonder if at the beginning of this, the really excited people in this state were sort of the Republicans who were excited about the recall and Democrats either weren't that excited or didn't even know there was a recall going on, which was the case with a lot of people in my life here in California who like volunteered for Joe Biden, made calls for Joe Biden, are usually very politically engaged and still didn't even realize that either there was a recall or that Gavin Newsom might be in trouble because of the recall. So like either way, it was it seems pretty clear that Democrats needed to wake up in this race, whether the polls were accurate or not. Um, and I think that's that's probably the one lesson that you can take away from the polls, right? Well, yeah, if you <laughs> in a state with an overwhelming Democratic advantage, you need Democrats to vote. That's if that happens, you can't lose. Right. And that, yeah. that's sort of what happened here. My larger take, though, and I, I wonder what you think about this, is that polarization rules everything around us at this point. Like Newsom's margin looks almost Preem? identical. Is, is that our episode <laughs> title? Preem? <laughs> that's going to confuse some It's people, everything yeah. around me. But yes, yes. <laughs> Newsom's margin looks well, that would have been weird to say. Newsom's <laughs> margin looks almost identical to his margin in 2018. It's close to Biden's margin in 2020. It's close to Jerry Brown's margin in 2014. Like the only differences that you're really seeing are the bluer places getting even bluer, the redder places getting even redder. Um, for example, if you look at the map right now, Newsom looks like he's overperforming Biden in some areas around San Francisco. He's slightly underperforming Biden in some rural areas. You saw that across the country in 2020. Um, and in an environment like this, it seems like if Democrats get vote- their voters excited and Republicans get their voters excited, you're going to see a map and a margin that looks very similar to the last election, only a little more polarized. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. It wasn't necessarily a given that that would happen in a off-year recall election happening on a random Tuesday in the middle of a pandemic. Like that takes actual organizing work and it takes some strategy from organizing. And the recall is a very complicated situation where you could end up with a split vote, where you have some Democrats who, you know, like let's take Newsom's approval rating has been in the mid-80s, I think, with Democrats in a lot of polling, right? You could end up where you have that Democrats who disapprove of Newsom Supporting the recall, but then supporting another Democrat on the ballot, where it's it's a little bit of uh, 
this whole thing is a little bit of an apples oranges comparison to everything that is going to come next. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. And look, I, that's another thing that the Newsom campaign did, right, is to make sure that no other Democrats jumped in the race. And a lot of pundits and a lot of people were like, oh, why can't I just have another? I don't like Newsom that much. Why can't I just have another choice for a Democrat? Well, if there was another real choice for a Democrat, who knows what might have happened? Because then you might have had more people voting yes on the recall and then picking a Democrat and Newsom and the other Democrats splitting a vote and then maybe Republicans. Anything could. I mean, he's winning by enough that maybe that wouldn't have mattered (laughs) at all. But um, it was clearly the right strategy from the Newsom campaign to box out all the other Democrats and to make sure that it was Newsom versus a Republican alternative, in this case, a right wing, crazy Republican alternative and Larry Elder. Um, I also think like if you're if you're thinking about what this means going forward, like you got to look at how Newsom did in uh, two Orange County districts that flipped Republican in 2020, the 39th and the 48th. Dave Wasserman um, from Cook Political Report says that he may be on track to slightly lose these districts. And of course, in 2020, Democrats slightly lost those districts as well, which would suggest sort of a national political environment. If you extrapolate out California, that is perhaps unchanged or hasn't changed a ton since 2020. Yeah, I think we are. If you were looking to try to extract something, you got to dig pretty deep to extract it. That tells you something about politics nationally is there is nothing that happened on Tuesday or in these the six weeks leading up to Tuesday that suggests anything has changed dramatically. There's not some backlash to Biden. There's not some backlash to Democratic COVID policies. We are just right where we were, which is some pretty fired up Democrats, some pretty fired up Republicans, some folks in the middle who will decide elections in states much closer, most more narrowly divided than California. And that's where we are. That could change between now and November of next year. But the political environment is sort of status quo ante from Election Day 2020 right now. And that last point is very important because for all my talk about polarization in a state like California, where it really matters, where candidates matter, their messages matter, their ads, the organization, everything else that we talk about in campaigns, polls uh, are in these purple districts and purple states where they're closely divided between Democrats and Republicans and you win the race on the margins. That's where a lot of this stuff matters. In deep blue states like California or deep red states, it's not going to matter as much. Now, you know, you, you said that you have to dig really deep to extrapolate something, but um, pundits did not have to dig all that deep. Uh, I know this is hard to believe, but there were some less than stellar takes about the recall on Twitter of all places. I mean, usually <laughs> it's a font of uh, reliable information and great observation. CNN's Chris Saliza wrote that it was, quote, a very good night for Larry Elder's political future. <laughs> but, but the winner of the most ratioed take of the week goes to CNN's Casey Hunt, who wrote, quote, the fact that a Democratic national star in waiting faced a recall and then had to fight hard for it midway through the campaign does say a lot about the potential challenges Democrats face across the map. Does it, Dan? Does it? (laughs) This is a situation where A plus B does not equal C. Yes, a Democratic star in waiting um, faced a recall challenge. Yes, Democrats have potential challenges in 2022. Those two things have zero to do with each other. And that is the most (laughs) important part about this, which is the reason Gavin Newsom faced a recall is California has an absurd recall process with an absurdly low threshold. What it takes is wealthy interest to pay people to gather signatures, to get it on the ballot. Gavin Newsom is quite popular. In most polling, he is well north of 50%, you know, 55, 56, 58% in approval rating. His 
COVID policies in a lot of polls are higher than is overall approving. So there is no backlash to Gavin Newsom. There's no backlash to mass mandates, vaccine mandates, anything having to do with COVID. There is no backlash to Joe Biden. There is no backlash to anything that happened in Afghanistan. The fact that the recall is on the ballot has nothing to do with the national political environment at all. And to make that take, and Casey Hunt is an excellent journalist, right? We all have bad takes. I will probably have several before the end of this podcast. But that is just a misunderstanding of the California recall law and the state of politics here. Yes, he did have to fight for it because getting people to turn out in an off-year recall election in a pandemic is hard and you have to work for it. I read all these takes on Tuesday night. I read a whole bunch more last night in this and in this morning preparation for this pod. They're all terrible. That's what, yeah. We you know we're picking on Casey just because of the uh, the incredible ratio, which is a stupid reason to pick on someone. Yes. But <laughs> but we are I will algorithmically guided by Twitter. Yes, it is indicative not only of a lot of the other takes, but of an East Coast bias among journalists as well. It's like just. Just understand the rules of a recall here in California, the country's biggest state. You know, I know that I know they only think about us out there when the uh, the smoke from our wildfires blows across the country and hits the East Coast. <laughs> you but actually, been... <laughs> we're a huge state out here. You have, a lot you... of the population of the country right out here. You moved to California eight years ago, seven years ago. Yeah, seven years, seven years ago. And you have it, already yeah. adopted the California <laughs> inferiority complex. Like, yes, we have Hollywood. I get it now. <laughs> I totally get it. No People one like, gets us and they eat no shitty one, tacos over there. No like, one fucking thinks about Pacific Coast time uh, at all. Everyone's just like calling you at random <laughs> hours. Like, you know, we're three hours behind. Do you fucking understand? We have wildfires out here. Climate change is bad. It was bad here for a long time. If you have people in your life who still call you without texting you first, that's on you. That's a you problem. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> then you no, have the wrong friends. When I first moved out here, it was fucking reporters in DC. Well, that's awesome. That's, that's, that's also a you problem. So that so that was so that was, those are some bad takes. I mean, but yeah, look, there are more than five million Republicans in California. In this case, you only need a little over a million signatures uh, to force a recall petition. Like that doesn't say anything about Gavin Newsom's unpopularity. That says something about the stupid fucking recall law in California. A um, couple other uh, takes just to watch out for. Uh, you might also see reporters and pundits suggesting that Larry Elder beat the polls by capturing 47 percent of the vote. He did not. He only captured 47 percent among the recall candidates, which is about 20 percent of the overall vote, which is right in line with what the polls said Larry Elder would do. Um, and then the other take that's going around there, um, it, it's a suggestion that Newsom underperformed with Latino voters um, based on the exit polls. Data on exit poll demographic groups is even more unreliable than the exit polls themselves. And when you look at the actual county data, um, there are so far no signs that Newsom did any worse in places with significant Latino populations. I believe in Orange County so far, something like 85, 88 percent of Latinos voted against the recall in, in Orange County. Now, what did happen is Latinos who live in more rural areas Newsom may have underperformed among them. And again, this is what we've been talking about before. To the extent that there may be a uh, Democrats may have a problem or a challenge with Latino voters, it is similar to the challenge they have with all voters, which is uh, voters who live in more exurban or rural areas, whether they are white, Latino, black, or any race, are trending towards Republicans more than they have in the past. All of these takes are reverse engineered from previously drawn conclusions. If you believe, 
the Democrats are fucked in 2022, then you can find evidence for this, right? This is the Latino take. This is the Larry Elder did well take. This is the fact that recall was on the ballot. That's the thing. If you are desperately looking for reasons to show that Democrats are not fucked in 2022, then you can also find that evidence here. And look, you and I have spent hours on this podcast digging into the most minute details of low turnout special elections. I think we even you know I consider it I consider it a fun hobby of mine. Yes, I think we once spent a lot of time back 2017 on a state Senate race in Oklahoma. That's Um, embarrassing for us. That's embarrassing. No, I I take it as a point of pride, actually. So it's sort of disingenuous (laughs) to say there are no lessons to be learned from. No. Yeah, of course. From the biggest state in the country having a statewide election. But I think we should just there's like giant caution flag here. I think there's nothing here that tells us something we didn't know yet. No additional warning signs and nothing that suggested the problems we had in 2020 don't still exist. I was going to say, if the if the lesson from the recall is that nothing much has changed in the national political environment since 2020, that's an important lesson. It doesn't mean that much has changed, but it's good to know where the national political environment is right now. And I think you can learn that a little bit from what happened in California. Um, so it's obviously clear that a lot of people, even some reporters, don't get how easy it is to force a recall election here in California. Again, you can try to recall a governor for any reason, and the number of signatures you need is just 12% of all the people who voted in the last election, uh, which in this case was a little less than 1.5 million people. So it, it seems, Dan, like while Democrats still have a Democratic governor and veto-proof majorities in the California state legislature, they should change uh, this ridiculous recall provision that cost taxpayers $276 million. That's how much this race costs. Um, how do they go about doing that? Well, John... It's not easy because it's in the Constitution. (laughs) So there are several ways to do it. The legislators can refer an amendment to the Constitution and put it on next year's uh, ballot. They can create an independent constitutional commission, which has bring opens up a whole can of worms. They can offer specific changes, but everything they do is going to require the people of California to vote on it because it's in the Constitution. So this is not something where tomorrow you can go in and just fix it or make it go away. So there have been a bunch of different proposals about how to reform it uh, that are floating around. You know, one of them is to create a reason, sort of like you'd have to have corruption or some other reason to to put something like that on the ballot. Some is to raise the threshold. One idea is to make it legal to pay signature gatherers to do it, to make it more of a grassroots thing to do. The one that I find most compelling is a governor could be recalled, but if the recall measure passes, then the lieutenant governor becomes governor. I agree. I was that was the same thing. I I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, just do that. That's so much better. Right. Because then at least like obviously that's better for Democrats in a state where Republicans haven't won a statewide election in potentially this century. Um, or I take that back in the last decade or so. Um, but at least then the person who becomes governor would be someone who had won a plurality of the voters in a regularly called election, as opposed to someone who gets a tiny fraction of voters in a low turnout election. That's not a partisan thing. That's fair for Republicans, too. If there's a Republican governor with a Republican lieutenant governor and Democrats get angry and just want to recall them, then you'll think twice because then the lieutenant governor becomes governor. It's just yep. it's a good provision. It should be in there. It's like impeachment, right? The vice president becomes yeah, president. Right? right. Except when Republicans try to impeach uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, all of the cabinet members and Nancy Pelosi uh, if they win in 2022, which will probably happen, I'm sure. President, Ke- president. Well, they wouldn't even have to. Well, that depends on whether the House or not, I guess. If Nancy Pelosi's in line of succession, then we have no impeachment problems. (laughs) Um, Okay, with all the caveats that we just laid out on on learning lessons, are there any lessons that um, 
we'll talk about both parties can take away from this recall. Let's start with the Democrats. Anything we can learn from Newsom's campaign and the way he campaigned uh, that might help Democratic candidates win in much tougher districts in 2022? Yeah, I think like once again, imperfect uh, laboratory to run this test, but there's a very clear math issue here that's a problem for Republicans, opportunity for Democrats, which is the majority of Americans are vaccinated. Those vaccinated Americans are quite angry at the unvaccinated people for continuing to make this pandemic a problem in their lives. And so making a direct appeal to vaccinated Americans, Republicans and Democrats, building sort of a coalition of the vaccinated, is a way to go on offense on COVID. Because Republicans have been arguing against Democratic, mostly Democratic measures to protect people from COVID from the very beginning. It is only both in this election, some in Virginia, and Joe Biden as recently as last week, beginning to make a much more forceful case for our policies, why they work, and and the role Republicans have played in keeping that vaccinated, unvaccinated number up high, where I think there's political power. And so that worked here. Could, could Newsom have won without it? Probably. But I think there, it does show that like that is a model that could be adopted by other people in, in states less democratic than California. I think the other big lesson from here is a, a fundamental lesson in politics. When you are a challenger, you want to make the race about the incumbent. When you are an incumbent, you want to make the race not a referendum, but a choice, right? This is Joe Biden's line. Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And Gavin Newsom in the last several weeks did not run only or even mostly on his record. He did not just talk about all the great things he did for California. He talked about Larry Elder. (laughs) He made it a choice between himself and Larry Elder and Larry Elder's crazy quotes, his crazy policies, all the harmful things he would do to California. And I think Democrats heading into 2022 have to be crystal clear about the consequences of a Republican majority in Congress and what they would do. And not just talk about Trump, right? Though that's part of it because they're all very Trumpy these days, all these Republicans. But you have to clearly communicate to voters that the choices between Joe Biden and the Democrats and all the good stuff they've done and anti-vax, anti-mask, anti-democracy Republicans, whatever you want to, whatever the message is about them. But you have to really clearly lay out the choice in the election between the two parties um, and not just not just run on your record. Okay, how about Republicans? Do you think a non-Trumpy candidate could have done any better than Larry Elder? Kevin Falconer, the more moderate former mayor of San Diego, uh, only ended up with 9% among all the re- recall candidates. <laughs> I mean, I know I put this question in the outline originally, but it's sort of a trick question, which is more moderate candidates, particularly more moderate Republican candidates, tend to win, particularly in states where that are less Republican. But it's also impossible. It can't happen. Kevin Falconer cannot win the equivalent of a Republican primary. That's not what Republicans want. It always ends with Larry Elder, right? Just like the 2016 campaign was (laughs) always going to end with Donald Trump. And that is going to, you know... With some, there might be a couple of of very local exceptions in these 22 primaries, but take the most Trumpy, MAGA esque candidate, and that is the person who is almost certainly going to win the primary in 2022. And so, like, yeah, it would be great if I'm sure for the Republicans, like, yes, we could run this moderate who had some appeal to Democrats, but that just can't happen. Like, you to have that happen, you need to live in an alternative timeline with an alternative Republican Party. You nominate Larry Elder, or you 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 uh, coalesce behind Larry Elder. Like, this is what you're going to get, right? Play, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. This is, this is, this is their party right now. Um, but look, I don't know if, like, clearly Kevin Falconer, uh, who was a moderate Republican, couldn't have won the whole thing, right? He's only pulling 99% among the recall candidates. But even here in California in 2020, you know, 
the Republicans were able to nominate some uh, less crazy Republicans for some of these House districts that they won, right? They nominated uh, Michelle Steele, Young Kim. They won the districts held by Harley Rota and Gil Cisneros, right? These were, they're still Republicans. They still have an awful record. We're still going to uh, fight hard to beat them in 2022, but they were not as Trumpy as some of the other Republicans. So it is possible that if this party you know, if a couple more moderate Republicans sneak through these primaries, that they could win some of these tough districts. But it doesn't look like a lot of them are going to win these primaries, at least from where I'm sitting. There's an important caveat here in California, which is we have a jungle primary. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. right. So, I was wondering how they I was wondering how they got through. Yes. Or, you can, or in the case <laughs> of young Kim and- or in the case of Mike Garcia, they just pretend to be moderate. And then they vote to overturn the election when they get to Washington. Right. Which is something we should remind people in 2022. Um One tradition that Republicans seem to have carried on from 2020 is casting doubt on the integrity of the election. Uh, Before Election Day in California, Larry Elder said that there may be shenanigans like there were in 2020, is what he said. Uh, And he also repeated the uh, the big lie. Donald Trump himself uh, came out and said that the election was rigged. Uh, A bunch of right-wing pundits said the same thing. Uh, It sure seems like this is going to be the Republican plan for 2022 and 2024 uh, in races that are going to be much closer than this one. Uh, what do we do about that? In 2026 and 2028 and 2030. In perpetuity. Yeah, yeah this, this is it. This is, the world, this is the world we live in as long as the Republican Party continues to appeal to this shrinking radical minority and Fox and Facebook continue to pickle the brains of large portions of the American populace. And that's, that's where we are. I mean, the California lesson is one, this is one of those super helpful lessons like win by 28 points. That's one way to avoid the problem. <laughs> yeah, they didn't they didn't call the election rigged after they lost. Yeah, in this one, right. uh, 28 points is a hard one to swallow, even for the crazies. Right. And if the polls had been correct in 2020, uh, then, yes, Donald Trump still would have said it was sold. I mean, let's not forget, Donald Trump said the 2016 election was rigged and he won that one. So it's so they're going to do it. Just the salience of it and the power of it goes down if we win by a lot. That is a completely unhelpful piece of advice because everyone wants to win every election by a lot. This is sort of just where we are. And it's going to really going to be incumbent on media outlets, social media platforms, other influencers and stakeholders, and even the tiny handful of Republicans like Romney and others to speak out against this and sort of sort of a bulwark against this dangerous uh, craziness. Yeah, because right now Trump is going state by state, swing state by swing state, and trying to replace election officials in those states who are not Trumpy enough and who basically who, who refused to or who did refuse to uh, help him overturn the 2020 election. And so if it's a Republican that wasn't sufficiently loyal, he's trying to get rid of them. If it, there's a Democrat in the seat, like in Arizona with Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, trying to get rid of that person. And so he is trying to put election officials in place in these key states that will when the time comes, overturn the election for him. It's very, very scary. And and we should speak up about it and protect those election officials at all costs. And also, you know, I know that there are some new provisions in this new compromise voting rights bill um, that uh, Joe Manchin and crew put together that actually go to some of these election integrity issues to actually sort of protect election officials, nonpartisan election officials to make sure that Republicans can't just get rid of them. Um, but again, that only passes if the filibuster uh, if the filibuster goes or is reformed. So we shall see. It's so funny that they had to put those provisions in the bill to stop the Republicans from overturning the election. But Joe Manchin's position is he needs Republicans to support the provision designed to stop them from stealing an election. It's like enlisting criminals to protect your house from being burglarized. 
It was an insane idea. It makes me so mad. I just I have to take a couple deep, deep breaths. Uh, and I'll do that during the break. When we come back, Dan and I will be joined by Congresswoman Katie Porter of California, uh, who will talk to us about the latest budget negotiations in Congress. All right, let's talk about the negotiations in Congress over the president's economic plan. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives finished turning Biden's Build Back Better agenda into roughly 2,600 pages of actual legislative text that includes progressive policies on health care, education, immigration, climate, taxes, and more. Here to talk to us about what's in, what's out, and what's next, one of my favorite members of Congress from right here in California, Katie Porter. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Uh, so what in this bill are you most proud and excited about? And what are you most annoyed and disappointed about? Well, the, the first question about annoyed and disappointed is always easier for someone like me who <laughs> like lives for the oversight and lives for the, you know, this is what you're doing wrong moment. So let me start there. Okay. The drug pricing negotiation piece of this must come back in. And so yesterday, um, earlier this week in an Energy and Commerce Committee, um, the effort to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices um, was voted down and was taken out of the budget reconciliation package. Without that, not only do seniors and Americans more broadly continue to get ripped off by big pharma, but we lose a big chunk of the revenue that we need to pay for other important, both healthcare and um, investments. So without allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, it gets very difficult to do things, for example, like make sure that Medicare is paying for dental and vision care. It's it difficult to lower the age of Medicare from 65 to 60, which we know would literally save lives. Cancer diagnoses jump at age 65 because people have been putting off screenings and care from 60 to 64. So that is a huge change we need to make. We need to let Medicare negotiate drug prices. Democrats and Republicans ran on this. President Trump even ran on this. That has to get put back in. I'm glad that you brought that up because uh, we are outraged by that as well. Like what's going on with your colleagues, Scott Peters, Kathleen Rice, Kurt Schrader, they all killed the provision. What are the chances that you think you can get it back in? I know that you guys only have like three votes to spare in the House and a couple of them. One of them said that, you know, one of the problems is that this provision doesn't have full support in the Senate either. And they have some alternatives. I'm guessing the alternatives are probably garbage. Like what, what do you think is going to end up in the final package here? What, what are the chances of it getting back in? Yeah. So one of the Mr. Peters, Scott Peters from California has an alternative. It only raises about one fifth of the revenue. So it doesn't capture very much cost savings. So it might address some of the most egregious things. It does some things, but it, it doesn't do what we should want for our healthcare system, which is to have price negotiation, because otherwise people are being ripped off. And we as taxpayers, whether we're on Medicare or not, are all being ripped off. You know, I think in Scott Peter's case, I mean, he represents a very heavily life sciences district in San Diego. Um, he's been sort of a champion on, um, you know, sort of fighting back, pushing back against anything that he thinks might weaken the profits and revenues um, and sort of, you know, his his view of what we need in terms of that life science industry. I think there's much less of a clear explanation for Kathleen Rice um, or Kurt Schrader. Um, I, you know, Kurt Schrader was one of the nine people People who tried, you know, who signed on to this letter and didn't want to, you know, he's been pushing back against the $3.5 trillion package for a while now. Yeah. Um, and so 
I'm not sure how you move him. Um, you know, I think Kathleen is a little bit more of a question mark um, from New York. She's she's talked about drug pricing before. Um, she ran on it. Um, and so I hope that she comes around. As a general matter, John, I don't think we can let what the Senate will do change what we in the House do. I mean, if there is a point to having bicameral body of legislature, it's that we do different things. Yeah. It's that we let those the differences in representation do their work. And so California, for example, has a much bigger voice in the House because we have 53 members and we have two senators and that's by design. And so I think the House ought to create the package that it thinks Americans need. The Senate can do what it thinks Americans need and we'll come together in conference and see where we land. Dan, does uh, voting against cheaper prescription drugs seem like uh, smart politics to you? I know you wrote uh, a message box on this this morning. You would have to look very hard to find a more self-defeating political decision than killing this provision, right? There's a new Data for Progress, Center for American Progress Action Fund pullout today, which shows that 73% of all voters, six in 10 Republicans support this. There are issues that people support. Then there are issues that cause people to rethink their political calculations to be more or less likely to vote. Of all the issues we've looked at this election cycle, this one is one of the biggest motivators for Democrats, it would even three in 10 Republicans would be more likely to vote for a Democrat who supported this provision. This this is such a political slam dunk on a broad point. Congresswoman Porter makes an incredibly important point that the option here is support seniors and all Americans over prescription drug companies. It's also getting prescription drug companies to help pay for incredibly popular initiatives like climate change and elder care and child care. And putting all of that aside to side with the industry that in Gallup's poll finds is one of the least popular industries in the country, only surpassed by the oil and gas industry. So it makes no sense to me politically. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to talk about taxes for a second. I know there's a lot of provisions in there that would make uh, the wealthiest Americans and big corporations pay their fair share. Help me understand what's going on with the state and local tax deduction, which is currently capped at $10,000. Brookings Institute says repealing that cap would give the top 1% an average tax cut of over $35,000, while the middle class would get an average tax cut of about $37. So why repeal the cap on on state and local deductions? Yep. So... um First, let me just make sure everyone knows this is not currently in the Ways and Means um, text that came out. So we're working, I'm working, I'm committed to actually pulling, like repealing this state and local tax deduction. I'm going to explain why, um, but it's not currently there. So this is one of the other top things that I'm that I'm working on. Um, I think this the easiest way to think about this is, is, a, is start with first principles. The whole point of a progressive taxation system is that after you pay for the things you must have, like food. This is where we have a standard deduction, where we have an exemption per person. After you pay your taxes, your Medicare, whatever, what you have left is your taxable income and the federal government taxes you on that. If you are forced to pay part of your income to the state where you live, you don't have that income left over to it's not available to you. And so the federal government ought to tax you on what you have left after you've paid your mandatory expenses, and that includes state taxes. The second principle is even easier to understand. No American with the same income level should owe the same earning power, the same salary, should owe more federal tax just because of where they live. Can you imagine if we, I mean, that's the system we've got now because President Trump, when he capped that state and local tax deduction, upset 
disregarded, abandoned a principle of our federal taxation system that had been part of it from the get-go, which is that what you owe to your localities and to your state, the places that you are closest to as a taxpayer and most able to control the expenses, those are considered mandatory deductions. They come out, you're taxed on whatever is left. And the state and local tax deduction upsets that. Now, with regard to the fact there are some very, very wealthy tax taxpayers who have huge homes and therefore they have huge state taxes, um, property taxes, for example, on those homes, we could think about some kind of cap um, to capture that. That's what I was going to um, ask. And I would be open to having that conversation. What I'm not open to is anyone suggesting that the current system is fair. This $10,000 was not based in reality. Um, it really punishes Californians. It punishes New Yorkers. It punishes Massachusetts. It punishes New Jersey. And do you know why? Because we pay for things in our state. We pay our teachers well. We pay for public health. We pay for first responders. We pay for climate programs. We do all the things that we want states to be doing as a federal government to care for their citizens. The last thing the federal government should be doing is discouraging that through this kind of tax system. Yeah, I was sort of railing against this on another pod um, because I know that a lot of the benefits go to sort of the wealthiest Americans. And a lot of people tweeted at me and said, well, I'm pretty middle class and and it's hitting me pretty hard, too. So I do think like maybe 10,000 is too low as a cap. But if you raise the cap just to make sure that super rich people aren't getting a huge tax cut here, that seems like it would be pretty important. Yeah, I mean, you could think about some kind of system. And I mean, part of this is, look, the you know, you're a Californian, a million dollar house in many of our communities is not a fancy house and not a very big one. And it's not to say that that isn't a million dollar house, but guess what million dollar houses come with? million dollar mortgages. Yeah. <laughs> and so people are paying a great deal of their house, of their of expenses on that mortgage. So I think we can come up with something that addresses and prevents abuse. And I think that's how we should be talking about it. The principle is we should ha- you should be able to deduct your state and local taxes. Then what is the appropriate curb to prevent any abuse in the tax system that we need to put on it? That's how we ought to be thinking about this. Dan, negotiations over a bill this size are always going to be messy. Uh, It does seem like we're getting even more uh, Democrats in disarray headlines than usual lately. Uh, How does this compare to negotiations over the Recovery Act or the Affordable Care Act? Any lessons from those fights? I went back when I saw this question, the outline, I went back and looked at some of the coverage from the healthcare battle in 2009, 2010, and it's actually quite similar. Um, Everything's a little more dramatic in the Twitter age. But I think the lesson from that applied here is, one, it's always going to be messy, particularly with margins this narrow that Congressman Porter is dealing with, where you know we could lose 35 Democrats and be fine back in those days. But the lesson is how you pass something is almost as important as what you pass. And so moving quickly, trying to get this done, do it right, but do it fast is much better because the longer it lingers, the easier it is for sort of special interests, Republicans and others to make hay of this and sort of take the sheen off the what, what is likely to be an incredibly important, progressive, popular final product. Congresswoman, you talked about making sure that you don't let what the Senate's going to do, you know, affect too much of what the House is going to do. What do you do about a problem like Joe Manchin, who said, I can only see one 1.5 trillion, you guys are at 3.5 trillion? Like how much how much leverage uh, do you have here uh, over the, the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas of the world? 
Well, I think the important point is not how much leverage I, Katie Porter, have. It's how much leverage we, the American people, have, <laughs> which is all of it. We have all of the leverage. We elected these people. And if we don't like what we're doing, we should blow them up. Um, and I say this to you as someone who represents equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans and feels like I get blown up pretty much on a daily basis um, by about half of my constituents. And that's part of the job. And it's part that makes me a better representative. So, look, I think that part of the issue with Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema is they need to justify where they're getting this number. The numbers in the $3.5 trillion bill aren't random. We didn't set out to say we want to spend X. We said, what are the problems we're dealing with? What does it take to prevent wildfires, which would be so much cheaper, by the way, than letting them burn and trying to deal with a disaster? What are the dollars that we need to be able to expand Medicare? What is the what, are, what do we need to do for childcare or paid family leave so we can fix the problem of women's workforce participation being at a 30-year low? So we built this from what do the American people need? What can we do to meet those needs? This is the package. They seem to be saying, uh, you know, one million seems big or 1.5 trillion seems too much, right? Well, two things. One, what are you gonna cut? Are you going to look at, at, these, at these pieces and say, you know, we're just not gonna do anything about a huge chunk of our workforce being out of the workforce. We're just not gonna do anything about climate. We're not gonna do anything about prescription drugs. We're not gonna do anything about, right? The second piece is, the real question for me as someone who really cares a lot about numbers, cares a lot about paying for things, cares a lot about being fiscally smart, is how are we going to raise the revenue? So it's not about what the number of the spending is. It's about what is what are we doing to pay for it and how are those things in balance? So I think the real question for me is about Joe Manchin is, is the problem here that you don't want to tax corporations, that you don't want to tax your corporate donors, that you don't want to cut profits for pharmaceutical companies, for big pharma by doing Medicare price negotiation? Is that what this really is about? Because I do think we ought to be having a discussion about how are we going to raise revenue in ways that keep our economy going while we're making these investments in economic growth. And to be clear, the stuff in the budget reconciliation bill is there because it is part of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, and it's there to help us have a strong, stable, globally competitive economy. If it's not meeting those to that test, strong, stable, globally competitive economy, then I think we should listen to someone who's saying this doesn't belong here. But that's not what Senator Manchin's saying. He can't honestly tell me that making it possible for more women to go to work and more parents of young children to go to work won't increase our economic productivity. So Speaker Pelosi promised a bunch of moderates in your caucus that she would hold a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on September 27th. If by September 27th, there's a vote on that bill and you don't have a build back better bill that is good enough or ready, are you still prepared to vote down the bipartisan infrastructure bill until you guys get the build back better bill that you want? Yeah. First up, I just want to whip out the whiteboard here. Yes. Nine. (laughs) Nine. Moderates (laughs) Moderates <laughs> does not equal a bunch. Okay, that's not, not a bunch. So let's make sure the American people know we've got two hundred and you know plus eight, fifteen, whatever Democrats, nine, ten, not a bunch. It's a handful of people, and I hope that they're rethinking their commitment to 
what we need to do here. Look, the bipartisan infrastructure package needs to pass, and it will. And the progressives have said from the very beginning, we support this package. We support infrastructure. It's creating good, high-paying jobs. It, too, remember, as I said, the, the touchstone for me is an investment that creates a strong, stable, globally competitive economy. Infrastructure clearly meets that test. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing we need to do. Yeah. Right. And so I think, you know, what, what we've said is we're going to vote for both of these bills, um, but they need to move in tandem. And I, I don't think it is um, responsible to pass an infrastructure bill and say, oh, this is going to create jobs. At the same time, we know that women's workforce participation is at a 30 year low and that childcare is a huge reason why. Are we, are we not creating jobs for all Americans? Yeah. Yes, we should be. So that means that we need to address all of the different things that are holding back Americans um, from being able to take those good paying jobs, from being able to go back into the workforce. So I, I think the plan here remains, and the Speaker Pelosi has been very, very clear about this from the beginning. Um, we're going to do these two things. We're going to do them together. They are all part of President Biden's agenda. Dan, uh, if you're watching this unfold from the White House, what do you do to help land this plane if you're Joe Biden? I think it's follow the advice that Congressman Porter just gave, which is stop talking about the cost of the bill. It is not 3.5 trade. The cost of the bill is zero dollars, right? It is what is talk about the things in the bill that are paid for by what happen to be incredibly popular initiatives. And so it's not we're not spending. We are. It is zero dollars. We should talk about that way. We are investing. Yes, thank you. Always go. better than I am in messaging. <laughs> yes, perfect. Yeah, investing is much better. Um, Two more questions I have for you that uh, I, I thought about while reading the news recently. Uh, first, I saw that uh, Pfizer CEO said they expect to apply for FDA approval of a COVID vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds in early October and a vaccine for kids between six months and five years in November. Uh, you wrote a letter uh, to the FDA last month with uh, Congressman Khanna asking for a briefing about how fast they'd be able to review these applications. Uh, you get any answers? Well, we got a very short letter back, um, but I believe we are getting our briefing. So Good. I, I have to look at my calendar, but I believe that's scheduled for next week. Um, and look, I think everybody, I hope everybody understands that the FDA has a process. We want it to follow that process. We want them to look at the research and look at the science. We want to make sure this vaccine is safe and effective, but it will be more effective and we will all be safer from COVID if they are building trust in that process by communicating what the steps are. And so parents, back to school comes, you know, state something that every child knows acutely, back to school comes once a year. Um, and so it's my favorite day of the year, by the way. I mean, <laughs> screw Christmas, back to school is like the best day of the year. And, um, and so we kind of blew past that window as a moment, not only to potentially vaccinate, but to communicate with parents about the steps in the process. So I think now what we're asking the FDA to do is just to lay out a little bit more what's going to happen once Pfizer makes that submission, what the steps will be. Um, for example, are they going to really foresee potentially, will they be evaluating whether or not these shots can be given at pharmacies um, versus having to go into a pediatrician's office? That might not sound like a big deal to some people. You've never tried to get three consecutive back-to-back -back appointments at a pediatrician's office oh, yeah. like I have. No, it's, it's, it's hard. It's... <laughs> and so the administration here, I have some questions about that. I have some questions about um, you know how this is going to fit. I think this is going to fit right in with other childhood vaccinations. But those are the kinds of questions we want to get answered with the goal of just making sure that parents 
are as prepared as they can be and have the information they need to make those decisions so we can get this vaccination moving quickly and we don't have the long delay and the hesitancy. Um, we try to reduce that as much as we can with information. Well, let us know what you hear. Uh, Dan and I both have uh, children now that uh, that are not vaccinated yet, so that's uh, very exciting news. Me too. <laughs> I got one too. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> rough. Um, the other, uh, I was also thinking about you when uh, I read these Wall Street Journal stories about uh, these internal Facebook documents that they got a hold of. Uh, the latest one, latest story quotes an internal Facebook memo that says an algorithm change they made is, quote, a liability that has, quote, had an unhealthy side effect on politics and news content by amplifying, quote, misinformation, toxicity and violent content. That's a Facebook internal memo. Uh, any plans to haul our good pal Mark Zuckerberg before Congress for uh, another round of questions? Oh, hell yes. The second I saw this, I texted my legislative director and I was like, blow this up. So it's, it's really important that we get these kinds of answers. One of the things about COVID that, you know, I think for me has been um, a little bit of a challenge, something I think about is, you know, the pandemic has exposed a lot of the, the problems that we need to solve in our society. It's opened up some new solutions to some of the problems we've had. Work from home, for example, telehealth, making people show up for appointments that they used to skip. Um, so there are some good things coming out of it. But one of the bad things is, and I'd be curious actually to hear what, you know, I know you guys ask the questions and I answer them. Please. I'd actually be curious to hear what Dan thinks about this. But not that I don't care what you think too, John, I do. Um, <laughs> no, believe me. Believe COVID, me, has kind of distracted Congress, not from solving a bunch of problems, but the oversight mission. Um, every time we do a huge legislative package, which we've had to do several times, the oversight and the investigation tends to, to sort of slow down. And so I am very eager to get Mark Zuckerberg back in. I have lots of questions for pharmaceutical companies still. I have lots of questions for the IRS commissioner. I have lots, I mean, just give me more witnesses because I'm ready. Dan, what do you think about that? Should we uh, investigate more before they start investigating us after the midterms? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes. I would, you could sell premium tickets to a Katie Porter, Mark Zuckerberg exchange at an oversight hearing. But when I saw that story, the first thing I thought of was Philip Morris documents in the 80s in the very famous and important hearings with the tobacco CEOs. And social media is in some ways, especially when it comes to addictive preying on children, that problem all over again. And so I love the idea that Congressman Porter wants to blow this up and really get into it because it, it is affecting everyone and we do not know enough. Uh, last question in, in the last segment, Dan and I uh, gave our takes on the California recall. You got any, any takeaways, any, any lessons from that? Well, I'm, I'm mostly just relieved. I mean, we have a governor who believes in science. We have a governor who believes in climate change. We have a governor who doesn't seemingly hate women um, like Larry Elder. I mean, we, this is a very, very good outcome for Californians. It's a good outcome for our economy. It's a good outcome for the people of California. You know, I, I will say, you know, it, it um, galvanized kind of local Republican activists and gave them a real, you know, sort of daily mission in life for the last year. I do think that sets us up to have to work very, very quickly um, in these competitive California House seats. Um, and so, you know, personally, I'm very, very happy that, and for my constituents, Republican and Democrat alike, I'm very happy that, that Governor Newsom is going to continue to lead California. Um, I do think it, it sort of puts us to a challenge in terms of creating the groundswell of engagement. 
you know, among Democrats and among independents and among sensible Republicans to kind of equal the groundswell of the Larry Elder supporting um, Republican Party. Yeah. If we don't have uh, if we don't have Democratic enthusiasm in 2022, uh, we don't we don't have a chance. So that's uh, that, that's one lesson that we took away as well. Uh, yeah. Congresswoman, but Katie- I'm not worried because I know that I can count on Pod Save America to come to Irvine or Tustin and do a big production and knock on some doors. Hey, all of that good stuff. Our last HBO show in Irvine. That was, of course, we'll be back there again. We, we love her. That fans. was the first love- time I met you and Tommy. And I was thinking about this the other day. It was sort of right toward the very end of the campaign and you're tired and you're worn out. And you guys were like, hey, so nice to meet you. Like, how's it going? And I said something like, I can't wait for this campaign to be over so I can just start fixing shit and helping people. I remember that. Like, oh my God, where'd you come from? <laughs> that's really how I felt and that's how I still feel. So yeah. um, I'm looking forward to, to revisiting that. We were knocking on doors with uh, Joe Biden in your district. And that was before Joe Biden was ever a presidential candidate. And look where we all ended up. Uh, we're still doing this pod. You're in Congress and Joe Biden's in the White House. Uh, thank- <laughs> Congresswoman Katie Porter, thank you so much for joining us as always. And uh, please come back anytime. Thank you so much. All right. So on Monday's pod, uh, we talked about how Trump is edging closer to a second run for president. This week, we got a couple fresh reminders as to why that's probably not such a great idea. Uh, Excerpts leaked from the new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa of The Washington Post called Peril, part of which takes us inside the final days of the Trump administration. There's also a book out next month from Melania Trump's former chief of staff, Stephanie Grisham, called I'll Take Your Questions Now, which... I imagine is an ironic title, uh, since Grisham was the only White House press secretary in history to never actually hold a press briefing. (laughs) She's just, it's so funny. That that title is just a fuck you to everyone? Yeah, I I think think that is. Being a White House press secretary who didn't do a press briefing is just so funny, because that's the job. It's in the title, right? What else are you doing? Literally, what else are you doing? Anyway, if you're like us and want to know what's in these books without actually reading them, we got you covered. Here are the top five excerpts sure to keep you up at night as you think about 2024. Number five, Donald Trump pressures Mike Pence to overturn the results of the election during a meeting in the Oval Office on January 5th, saying, quote, wouldn't it be almost cool to have that power? Pence says, no, I've done everything I could and then some to find a way around this. It's simply not possible. Then Trump loses it and says, No, no, no. You don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore (laughs) if you don't do this. Does that sound like Donald Trump to you? I don't want to be your friend I mean, with all due respect to the legendary Bob Woodward and the very excellent Bob Costa, you people are mailing it in here. That is the least (laughs) believable dialogue I have ever heard. I am confident some known liar told them that, but- Come on. It's not like we haven't been listening to Donald Trump blather on for decades in this country. If you want to create Donald Trumpian dialogue, there is plenty of opportunities. It is so it's pitiful that like I am. I'm embarrassed for everyone involved. <laughs> Did you listen to Pod Save the World this week when Tommy and Ben talked about all this? Yes. And I, I, have, it, I have a lot of have thoughts. You on had, that. Have you had soup? For, from Bob no. Woodward? Did Bob Woodward give you any soup? No, I cannot believe Ben did that. Here, there is <laughs> one... For those, of you who haven't, for those of you who haven't heard the episode yet, even though I know you all have already listened because you're all worldos, 
Um, Tommy asked Ben if Ben has ever gotten the Woodward treatment. So talk to Bob Woodward for one of these books. And Ben did reveal that Bob Woodward invited him for lunch and then made it like a three or four course meal that took a long time so he could get as much out of Ben as possible and served him some soup, some hot soup for lunch. Okay. Do you know what the for a Democratic communications professional, what the equivalent of going to Bob Woodward's house is? It's a Democratic presidential candidate putting a helmet on and getting in a tank. It is the one thing <laughs> you know you're not supposed to do. Because in the 90s, George Stephanopoulos famously went to dinner at Bob Woodward's house. And I don't know whether he had soup or not, but because he did that, and then when Bob Woodward's book, I think it was called The Agenda, came out that was very anti-Clinton, the fact that, that Stephanopoulos had gone to his house became a huge problem for him within the White House. The Clintons were incredibly mad at him. Like he was demoted in some ways. Like it's the, the one thing they tell you is if Bob Woodward wants to meet with you, you meet with him in your office and you let everyone see him walk into your office so that everyone knows that it's on the level. So Ben obviously did not talk to me before he ate the soup, but that was, that was <laughs> I heard that. And I, if I had soup in my mouth, Woodward's or otherwise, I would have spit it out because that was wild. I'm so glad that I never, I don't think I was ever asked, which is great. I was not important enough to be asked to um, to sit down with Bob Woodward, thing, but I wouldn't have done that anyway. I would have been scared shitless to talk to Bob Oh, Woodward. I had to, I had so many meetings with Bob Woodward in my office for all to see. And then I would send a note to various people above me on the food chain indicating smart. what he had asked me about, like paper Very trail smart. the shit out of that thing. Let me tell you. Um, all right. Number four. Trump loses his shit at then Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who had just announced publicly that he opposed invoking the Insurrection Act in response to the Black Lives Matter protests near the White House. Trump reportedly said, quote, you took away my authority. You're not the president. I'm the goddamn president. He then turned to the rest of his team and said, you're all fucked up. Everybody, you're all fucked. Every one of you is fucked up. Now, that sounds more like yes. Trump. That, that, <laughs> that, I that, can that I can believe. Yes. That is terrifying. By the way, the fact that Trump really was that close to invoking the Insurrection Act and sending federal troops in to stop protesters, peaceful protesters, is fucking terrifying. Because there's a lot of Republicans, a lot of other people, when that was happening, be like, oh, everyone's exaggerating. Is he really going to do the Insurrection Act? Probably not. Everyone calm down. No, it sounds like he was pretty fucking close. And it's a good thing that Esper went out there and said something. Yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark Esper, brief hero for a day, I guess. Yeah, every uh, the bar for all these heroes is fucking yeah. on the ground. All right, number three. This one is from Stephanie Grisham's book, who says that on January 6th, she texted Melania, do you want to tweet that peaceful protests are the right of every American, but there is no place for lawlessness and violence? Melania responded a minute later, no. Now, because Politico Playbook is apparently uh, Melania's new press shop, they led the newsletter the other day with a few text messages from Grisham that were provided by a senior Trump aide where she seemed sympathetic to overturning the results of the election, at least in her home state of Arizona. Hard to know which set of miserable liars to side with here, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, like, yeah, they're all lying. I think Stephanie Grisham's lying. I think Melania's lying. I think the people talking about Melania, everyone, they're all liars. They're all bad people. Yeah, That's all we need to know. I would definitely skip the Grisham book. <laughs> that, with, with all stick with, stick with John Grisham, not Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Some people who think they're getting the firm and end up with this, that would be embarrassing. That's an that's that's yeah, I would yeah. I would pass on that one. I'd I'd wait for the movie. Um all right, number two. The revelation from the Woodwork book that's getting the most attention involves uh, Trump's handpicked chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Milley. Apparently, 
This is very scary. Apparently, American intelligence showed that just before the election, the Chinese government came to believe that Trump would launch a military strike against China as an excuse to seize emergency powers and stay in office, much like Hitler's Reichstag moment. Uh, In response, Milley called his Chinese counterpart to reassure him that Trump had no plans to attack China and that the United States government wasn't collapsing, saying, quote, things may look unsteady, but that's the nature of democracy, General Lee. We are 100 percent steady. Everything's fine. (laughs) I I do like the everything's fine. It's just like Mark Milley is the dog with the fire meme around him. (laughs) Oh, the younger, more online crooked staff are going to throw yeah, something at us. <laughs> I re- it's a very old meme that when I see it, I'm like, this joke yes. has not been funny for about three years. But anyway. Yes. Um, so Millie also reportedly, according to the Woodward book, uh, guaranteed Pelosi that he'd prevent any kind of, quote, illegal or crazy military action from Trump and then convene the top military commanders to remind them that no one should launch a nuclear strike without following strict procedures. That seems like uh, you shouldn't need to say that. <laughs> Just, hey, guys, as an aside, don't launch any nukes unless you follow the rules. Um, And I guess those strict procedures include getting an order from only the president himself and making sure that Milley is in the loop. Um, Now, Republicans are losing their shit over the story. Trump has denied it, but also accused Milley of treason. People like Marco Rubio have called on him to resign for supposedly undermining the commander in chief. What do you think about all this? I have no idea what to believe. (laughs) I is. These books are so problematic in so many ways to know what's really happening. And it's it's a problem with the genre, right? And it's a genre that Woodward himself invented. It's this that you know, he uses this omniscient narrator function where everyone, every interview, other than maybe with the president themselves, is on deep background. And so he recounts all these moments, and the reader never knows who's telling them, right? And because of that, there's so there are two problems with that. One is Every one of these books, whether it's the the one written by Woodward or the ones written by Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig or Michael Bender, all of them, and they're all like good, interesting books and they're following a model, but they're all written like with the idea of like a William Goldman screenplay at the end. Like they all want to be all the president's men. And so, and here's the thing, life in government is like consequential, but kind of boring on a daily basis, right? Like this is the thing we know from reading a bunch of books about meetings yes. we were in. It's like... Yeah, that's kind of like the funhouse mirror version of what actually happened. Like it was an important decision, but there yeah. was people weren't yelling. It wasn't like there's there's usually a kernel of truth to all of yeah. these stories from just from our perspective, having been in the White House and then read about them. And like the general sense is is usually correct, but there's usually a lot of details that are wrong. Yeah, and because of the anonymity and this sort of over dramatization, one of the things important to recognize is all these conversations, right? The ones that sound nothing like Trump, the ones that sound like Trump. They're not based on tapes. They're not based on transcripts. In most cases, they're not based on written notes because no one in Washington writes down presidential conversations for fear of getting subpoenaed. It's just people's recollection. And particularly with Trump, but with all these books, everyone has an agenda. It is very clear from this book and some of the others that came out is that Mark Milley is on a full, has a full-time job of trying to rehab his reputation for standing next to Trump in Lafayette Square. And it is yeah, as, uh, as, as Tommy said on Wednesday, he definitely had the soup. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that is ex- like, and so it's it's hard to know what actually happened. What didn't I think if if a general is doing freelance diplomacy without the president with China, that's bad. Like we do. We do not want that in our country, whether Trump is the president or someone else. 
But how much of it is real? How much is it? How much is overdramatization? How much is poorly communicated in, in the first, second, third hand retelling of these things? I just have no idea. I will say, now that I've dug into this and like prepared for this pod, even if you think everything in the book is 100% correct, it still doesn't suggest that Millie was doing a bunch of freelance diplomacy. Like, and, and Millie has since put out statements or the Joint Chiefs has put out a statement. Biden has completely backed him. And basically what they're saying is like he calls his Chinese counterpart all the time. Um, that's part of the job. There were a bunch of other people in these meetings. Transcripts of these calls went to all the people they were supposed to go to. So this wasn't some like secret call. Like a lot of people knew about this. And also like if there's American intelligence saying that, like, yeah, the Chinese think that we're going to launch a strike at them. Yeah, maybe if that's not correct, <laughs> then you're going to want to let ma- let the Chinese know so that they don't launch a fucking strike against us. Like, you're going to want to take measures after you get American intelligence the Chinese thinks we're going to strike them, right? Like, that just, that seems like something that you'd want to take care of. And also, like, the idea that he would then just sit down all of his staff and say, yeah, follow strict procedures for launching a nuclear weapon and include me. But then he also said, you can only launch one if the president himself orders the strike. That doesn't necessarily seem like he's undermining the president when he says don't launch the strike unless the president tells you to. Yeah, that seems that seems like one of those things. It's like, is you know how sort of like you have a regular fire drill at school? It's sort of like they had a fire drill. They made it seem like like maybe just every once in a while. Yeah, they rebrief everyone on the rules because otherwise, who was the person other than the president they were worried about launching a strike? <laughs> it's like. Right. It's like like Stephen Miller. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like it's like I got a, hey, I got a call from Kushner who said uh, <laughs> <laughs> we could fire up some missiles. Should I should I just go ahead with it? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Very. By the way, though, incredibly scary. The whole thing. The fact that China was thinking that. The fact that they got to that point. The fact that Milley had to call his counterpart say, "Hey, we're not going to launch a nuclear strike because he's not going to fucking repeat a Reichstag moment." Like that is fucking terrifying. And that leads us to number one. Trump was apparently so consumed with Biden after he finally left office that he wanted to use his private plane to taunt the new president and was considering getting it painted like Air Force One, saying, quote, that's my brand. I don't do the corporate jet thing. I'm not going to show up in a little Gulfstream like a fucking CEO. (laughs) Former Trump manager, uh, former uh, Caitlyn Jenner campaign manager, Brad Parscale uh, did a fantastic job there. I think she's sitting at 1%. Um, Parscale also said of a possible 2024 run for Trump, I don't think he sees it as a comeback. He sees it as vengeance. I pick this as number one because of all the hints Trump has given about 2024. This is the one that leaves no doubt in my mind that he's running again. He's angry. He's humiliated. He wants revenge. That That is very Trump to me. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I'm sure... I actually find, even find the Air Force One painting job thing to be quasi believable. Like it sounds like a stupid oh, idea. For sure. A stupid. He is a stupid man with a lot of stupid ideas. That's a very stupid idea. So it seems very possible. And is he an angry, vengeful person? One hundred percent. Right. He hasn't been off Twitter if so long. Anything we, we know that. about him, yeah. we know that. Right. Whether that means he'll run or not. Who knows? I definitely think he. I definitely believe that he thinks he's running and he. Whether that will manifest itself or not, who the fuck knows? And it doesn't really matter at this point. What will we do differently, right? But yeah, I mean, he's an angry – like that is the thing with all of – not Stephanie Grisham's book. Put aside a self-serving memoir from a known liar. Well, actually, we don't know if she lies because she never did a briefing. So I'm just presuming – she's a presumed liar. Um, But – is you take the gist, the, the the larger arc, the gist of the book, and the gist of the book is Donald Trump is a dangerously incompetent 
vengeful human being who should be nowhere near the levers of power in this country. And that, thank you, Bob Woodward, for giving us that information. We would not otherwise have known. <laughs> That's look, why you're the legend. He now exists as a humiliated person. He knows that. He's not going to pretend that he's humiliated, but he's humiliated. And his choices are to either die a humiliated figure or to try to run again and win again and complete his uh, his uh, his vengeance against Joe Biden and the rest of the country. Or get more humiliated again. That I do think that the yeah. fear of humiliation uh, from a second loss looms that's over that decision yeah maybe that's the maybe that's the one caveat there that could save us from another trump run but uh i know we keep talking about like the possibility of trump running again it's because it is a very scary and terrifying and and uh i think at this point likely prospect and if he runs he is odds on favorite to win the nomination i think i think it's almost probably a lock and then we have another 2020 situation where back to our conversation about polarization forty thousand votes go another way in a couple swing states and uh, Donald Trump is president. Do you mean a couple so, swing states where they've dramatically restricted voting in the very precincts that turned the election for Joe Biden? Do you mean those swing exactly, states? Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So everyone, uh, so the, you know, the good news from California is even though it's a deep blue state in California, like they need, Newsom needed Democrats to wake up. They woke up, they got energized, they got organized. Thank you to all of you who listened, who got your friends to vote, who got people to register, who made phone calls, who organized. We all did a bunch of phone banks before this, and uh, it was good to see a whole bunch of volunteers really excited. We need that kind of energy in 2022 and beyond, and people need to start paying attention now because uh, it's going to get a little rocky. It's going to get a little (laughs) rocky. So um, thanks again to Katie Porter for joining us today, uh, and I hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. And our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, Roman Papadimitrio, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. <laughs>